Seven Chakras, episode 261. In truth, there is only one mind. The seven chakras, swirling vortices of energy, positioned throughout our body, from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras. And now, your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, host and founder of My 7 Chakras, the show where we provide you the wisdom and action steps that will help you transform your life. Now, if you're new to our show, then I want to give you a warm, warm welcome. And before we actually begin today's amazing episode, I have a couple of announcements to make. Firstly, over the years, many of you have reached out saying that you'd like to support the show in some way. So recently, I started a Patreon page for people who would like to support our movement. Visit my7chakras.com for forward slash patreon that's my seven chakras.com forward slash p-a-t-r-e-o-n and for those of you who aren't aware patreon is a pa- platform that allows you to donate a small amount of money each month to support the expenses that go into creating this podcast right such as the podcast production graphics um, software and, and equipment and this way i'm able to provide you more number of episodes higher quality content and life changing information at your fingertips To learn more, go to my7chakras.com forward slash Patreon and you can get started for as little as $7. And if you haven't already downloaded the My 7 Chakras reading list PDF yet, which is based on books that I have recommended, in fact, our guests have recommended on the show, visit my7chakras.com forward slash reading list. That's my7chakras.com forward slash reading list to get your free download right away. And with that being said, let's bring you our guest for today, Mark Gober. So, Mark, are you ready to inspire? Absolutely. So, Mark Gober is an author whose worldview was turned upside down in late 2016 when he was exposed to world-changing science. After researching extensively, he wrote an end to upside down thinking to introduce the general public to these cutting-edge ideas all in an effort to encourage a much needed global shift in scientific and existential thinking now uh, this book is readily available and we're going to go into 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 depth in terms of what are the implications of what he's uh, talking about in his book and we're going to talk about some of the research that is uh, being done today a lot of which is going to really uh, blow your minds so to speak so i'm really excited about this and i know that you are excited as well no matter where you're listening to this episode from uh, but before that thanks a lot for joining uh, me mark really appreciate it yeah thank you for having me Great great. So as we always do, let's begin our show with a dose of informa- uh, inspiration, not information, inspiration. What is your favorite inspirational quote these days and how do you apply it in your life? Okay, I will provide a quote from a famous physicist okay. named Erwin Schrodinger and he's often known for the famous Schrodinger's cat. Mhm. And what he said, and this is related to the my book that we'll discuss in the general topics, but what he said is in truth there is only one mind and that is 
That is the overarching theme of my book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, which is suggestive of a consciousness that we are all a part of. Even though we appear to have these individual experiences, there is an interconnectedness, a one mind that we are a part of. And I think that has, has had a big influence on how I've approached life as I've gotten into this research and have approached and treated other people as uh, kind of part of this collective rather than as being so separate, which is, mm-hmm. was my old mindset. Mm-hmm. Wonderful quote. In fact, it hasn't been shared on our show before this. So thanks a lot for bringing this up. Action Drive, in truth, there is only one mind. Take a minute or a couple of seconds to really think about the implications of what is just being said. In truth, there is only one mind. And I know deep down, especially if you're a regular listener, you've heard this theme in many of our episodes, the collective consciousness, the universe. And you know yourself that you feel connected. There's this fabric that connects all of our minds together. And today, we're going to learn more about it. So let's begin. So Mark, what inspired you to write your book? Well, if we had spoken two years or so ago, I wouldn't have had a plan to write a book at all or even Mm -hmm. have known about these topics. My background is in business. I'm a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley, advising technology businesses on their innovation. Prior to that, I I worked in investment banking in New York with a company called UBS, a very large global investment bank. And I was there from 2008 to 2010. So right during the crisis Mm -hmm. was when I was working there. And prior to that, I was a student at Princeton University where I was captain of the tennis team. So much of my life has been focused on business and athletics, and that's kind of my day-to-day. But it was two years ago or so that I I first actually learned about these topics through podcasts, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for them outwardly. I was listening to health podcasts and business podcasts, and in one of them, a person came on talking about psychic abilities, talking about working with energy. And these were things I had never really heard of in any serious way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became interested enough to listen to other podcasts. And over time, I, I noticed a lot of similarities in what people were saying in their own personal experiences. So that led me to start looking at science, to look at consciousness and what is it? And is consciousness produced by the brain? And can consciousness survive when our body dies? Mm -hmm. Are we interconnected? And the more research I did, the more I realized that I needed to shift how I was thinking about things because I I, I was certainly not in that camp before because I just had never been exposed to it. So I I spent about a year um, of just intense research, reading, listening to podcasts, talking to scientists and and ended up actually writing the book over a few weekends in July of 2017. Yeah. And what, what prompted me to write the book was, number one, my just personal interest in the topics. But I think most importantly was that when I started to tell friends about the research I was doing and the implications, mm-hmm. they told me that their lives were actually shifting and their perspective on life was shifting. So I said, okay, this seems like a very important topic. And and the message gets is getting through to people who have also never heard of these things before. So I said, why don't I just take the time to to just put it on paper? And I I was able to get the you know dump dump what was in my head onto paper very quickly, and then uh, that is the book that's now out. Wonderful, wonderful. So thanks a lot for sharing. Uh, now now here's my question. Uh, and in fact, many of our listeners. Uh, have found my show as well as many other similar shows through podcasts, right? And everyone has a unique story. Everyone has a different story of how they got into the, you know, this uh, path, so to speak. But uh, where were you in life when you were sort of, uh, you know, wanting to uh, learn more about this topic or maybe getting into podcasts? So what was happening in your life? If you can give us a little background on that. 
Sure. So I was professionally, I was with my my current firm Sherpa, which where I've been with the firm for over eight years. But I think on a, a more existential level, how I thought mm. about life, I was in a place where I thought that life had no meaning at all. And that wasn't a new thing for me. That's what I had always thought science suggested. Because if we think that the reason that I, that we are conscious, so right now I'm, I have an awareness. I know it's there. And what I thought about it without even really digging into the question was, well, the only reason that that's happening is because of my brain and that there's chemical activity, complex stuff with neurons in my brain, and it's causing my experience. It's allowing me to be conscious. Mm -hmm. So if we take that another step further, what does it mean when the brain stops functioning and when the body dies? It would imply that the consciousness and the memories and the feelings are gone. Mm -hmm. It's over. So I understood what that meant, and I thought that's what science suggested. So I had a difficult time thinking about any meaning in life, any deeper meaning, because I thought, once you die, it's over. So mm -hmm. if I, it, regardless of what happens to me on a day-to-day -day basis, it doesn't really matter unless I'm just rationalizing because eventually I'm going to be dead. Yeah. And I would kind of go back and forth in my mind over this and say, wow, the implications of our, of our science and what the world seems to be is that there is no meaning in this universe. So I actually found it very difficult, even though I would still go about my day-to-day -day and, and people might not have known uh, if you met me, that I had that way of thinking, yeah. but I really was analytical about, well, what does it mean to be alive? And I, I concluded, like many scientists today, that there's no meaning and we're in a random universe. Got it, got it. So you had this uh, belief system or this uh, uh, idea that this is all there is and that you know there's nothing that happens after life. And you mm -hmm. were in this phase of seeking more meaning uh, in an existential journey, uh, so to speak. So what did you come across, maybe in the podcast or maybe in a study or some sort of a research that made you think differently or made you change your mind or at least look forward to different answers? Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting about it is that when I was listening to podcasts, I wasn't explicitly looking for something to change my worldview because okay. I thought science already proved it. I thought you know consciousness is from the brain, so that's it. But I was just trying to do things to entertain myself. And okay. the first podcast that I heard um, was it was on Extreme Health Radio, just a, an alternative health show. And the next one in the queue when I was listening one day in August of 2016 was a woman named Laura Powers who is a psychic who used to see things as a child and kind of shut it out of her life and then later in life has brought it back in. And, and now she works with clients mm -hmm. and you know talks to beings that are not physical and helps to clients using those energies. Yeah. So what, what I remember about the episode is that it didn't, it didn't change my world or anything listening to that one episode. But at the end, she said, well, I have my own podcast. It's called Healing Powers. Her name's Laura Powers, where where she said she interviews other people who have had similar experiences. And I was looking for a new podcast because I drive from San Francisco down into Silicon Valley, which is a long drive. And I said, oh, that's that's interesting. I'll just put that podcast on. Mm -hmm. So over a, the course of a few weeks, I would just leave her, her podcast on and let it play. And what happened was at first I just thought it was interesting. And, and then over time, I got to the point where I was like, wait a second – the people she's interviewing are all saying a very similar thing about consciousness mm -hmm. and they're talking about surviving death and communicating with, with beings that are not physical and psychic abilities. And it struck me because I couldn't 
reason that they were all being delusional or that they were all lying. Yeah. So I got curious about it. And it, it actually – it wasn't like one episode to switch my worldview, but it was the accumulation where I, I got to the point where I said, wait, is there something going on here that I didn't know about? Because if there is, mm-hmm. then I have to rethink a lot of my assumptions. So it was a very it was a it was a very transformative period for me where I I continued my research beyond her podcast and started looking at some very credible science which is discussed in my book like from the US government from mm-hmm. Princeton University from the University of Virginia that was all suggesting that what the people said mm-hmm. on these podcasts that there was actually some potential validity looking at quantum physics and other things to suggest that it was actually a real thing Got it, got it. And what I love about your story is that you let your curiosity drive your journey, right? It's, it was not like you wanted to believe something. You you just were curious. And as you, you know, listen to more and more episodes and hear, heard people's stories, you grew more interested in this topic. Now, before we dive deeper, based on what you know today, based on what you've learned, what according to you is consciousness? What is your definition of it or your understanding of it? That's a really good question. And now the way I think about consciousness, I think about it as being kind of this infinite uh, infinite thing that if we try to define it using language, that is putting a limit on something that doesn't have a limit. Yes. But we, we live in a world where we have to use language. So uh, <laughs> to the best that I can come up with something using language is I like to think about it as our inner subjective experience. So when I say that I am speaking to you right now, that sense of identity, that kind of awareness is what I mean by consciousness. And it's not a physical thing. It's, you know, I can touch my leg, I can touch my body, but I cannot touch my consciousness. It's not physical, but it is present as my identity. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned uh, in, your, in your definition that it's, it's, it's fundamental, non-local, and cannot be explained in terms of brain mechanisms. So can you elaborate a bit, bit more on that? Yes, and this gets to the heart of of where my research led me. When I was mm. first exploring, it was just about you know hearing individual people who had experiences. And I should also mention that I just said, oh well, if if certain psychics can can do extraordinary things, they should be able to do them for me. So part of my journey was to talk to uh, kind of many psychics and do my own personal experimentation. And sure enough, there were people that were able to do things. Yeah. So when I was seeking to explain all this, I said to myself, like, how do I for myself, explain a framework for all of this? And how can I explain it to people around me? Because people around me and in my circles are not familiar with these things. And this is getting back to your question. To me, everything centers around um, the question of where consciousness comes from. So we we just define consciousness. Anyone listening to this show would say that they have a consciousness. They are aware at the moment of listening to this. So the consciousness exists indisputably. Actually, everything else in the universe in that, that we see as being physical, mm-hmm. it's, it's an inference. The only thing that we actually know for sure is that we are conscious. So that's a really big thing. There's this consciousness that we know exists. How does it come about? And what I didn't realize until I got into the research was that science does not have a good answer for this. And in fact, Science Magazine, a very credible mainstream scientific outlet, they have said that the number two question that remains in all of science Mm -hmm. is this very question. And the the way they phrase it in scientific terms is, quote, what is the biological basis of consciousness? In other words, 
How is it that this biology, that mm-hmm. our physical body, like you can touch your body, it's physical. How does it produce a non-physical consciousness? You can't touch your consciousness, and yet mm-hmm. you can touch your body. How yeah. does it happen? They don't know the answer, and it's called the hard problem of consciousness. It's been debated throughout the ages. So that to me was a big step of, wait a second, yeah. even in mainstream circles, there's a big question here. So yeah. then the next step is that I began to ask, and especially based on the research I did, well, are we asking the wrong question? The question is, how does the brain produce consciousness? How does biology, our body, produce it? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe it doesn't produce it at all. And that's where this is all, that's the, the whole premise of my book, which is that the brain is related to consciousness. We shouldn't just throw out the brain. That's not what I'm saying. But we have to rethink its relationship. And mm-hmm. I, I'd love to give an analogy that I think the history books may look back at this period in time and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe they made this error. And it's the error to say that, well, we know the brain is related to consciousness. Therefore, the brain must produce it. Mm -hmm. Like someone gets in a car accident, for example, and they have brain damage, and maybe they lose their memory in certain ways. And we say, look, you change the brain, you change the consciousness. Another example, let's say you, you, you do an experiment with electrodes and you stimulate a part of the brain that's responsible for vision, for example, and then the person has a change in their vision. So again, you change the brain state, you change the consciousness. What most of science is saying is, well, clearly the brain is causing the consciousness because we're changing the brain, we change consciousness. Here's the potential error. I'll give an example. If we imagine, like I live in California and we have lots of fires right now. Mm -hmm. When you have fires, firefighters show up. You have a larger fire, you have more firefighters that show up in the scene. So here, just like the brain and consciousness, we have a really strong relationship between the presence of the fire and the number of firefighters that are showing up. Now, in this case, do we assume that the firefighters are causing the fire? Mm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? So this is the potential error that we're making with consciousness is we think that because two things are related, one is causing the other, and we're leaving out potential alternatives. And the alternative, the way I look at the brain and many others do as well, is to say the brain is acting as like an antenna receiver of consciousness, or I think more precisely to, is to call it a filtering mechanism, where there's some broader consciousness well beyond what we are perceiving with our eyes that is there, but mm-hmm. our brain shows us only a very limited sliver and the same with our body and our eyes and our ears. So mm-hmm. our picture of reality is a sliver of something much broader. Got it. Got it. So uh, thanks a lot for sharing. And I think it's really, really informative. Action Tribe, if you're having a difficulty in comprehending or understanding what is being said over here, don't worry. Because as Mark said, this is the number two question that all the scientists and research are trying to get uh, learn more about is consciousness. And we're also learning about this very important topic, which is uh, causation versus correlation. What is causing what? You know, is the brain really creating the consciousness or is the consciousness really, uh, on the other hand, creating the brain and the reality as we know it around us? Now, Mark, uh, here's a question that I'm sure everyone can relate to. There are instances when it happens where, you know, you're thinking about somebody. And they call you. Or maybe you're thinking about somebody deeply, you miss them, uh, and you care for them, and they uh, and you're sitting at a Starbucks and they, and they just come through the door, right? And so everyone has had some of these mystical experiences for which they have no explanation. So what are your views on telepathy 
and maybe mm-hmm. psychic abilities. And what have you found through your study? Okay. I, I would love to talk about some studies on telepathy, but first I'd love to give your listeners um, a very quick intro to something in quantum physics because mm-hmm. I think it's really important to understand that our science, our physics, is showing that some of these things make sense. Mm-hmm. And so quantum physics is an area that's been around for over 100 years, so it's actually not that new anymore. But it's so counterintuitive because our eyes only show us kind of the macro scale, and we don't see the very small things with our eyes. And what quantum physics shows us is that things are happening that, that, ha- that, that suggest an interconnectedness. And the phenomenon that might be related to telepathy, before we get into telepathy itself, mm-hmm. it's called entanglement. This is a really big topic that even Albert Einstein was looking at. And what Albert Einstein said was that this was a spooky action at a distance. Why did he say that? <clears throat> this is how it goes, and I'm simplifying this dramatically. If you have one particle in one place, like a physical thing – and you have another particle in a, a faraway place. When you affect one, the other one that's far away mirrors it, is instantaneously affected, as if there was no time gap. So it's, this is why Albert Einstein called it spooky, because when you affect one, the other one that's far away, at the same mm-hmm. instant, it changes. So this is going against his idea that the speed of light is the fastest that anything can travel. In, in this case, it sounds like we have an interconnectedness in the universe that our eyes are not showing us. And this blew Albert Einstein away. He actually tried to disprove it, but he ended up proving that it was true when he mm-hmm. went through his experiments. And since then, it's been, it's been accepted as being a real thing. So if there is this interconnectedness in the universe, people have begun to ask, well, you know, this is the fabric of our reality, some kind of interconnectedness. Could it be related to our minds? And this might get back to the quote I started with of Erwin Schrodinger. In truth, there is only one mind, maybe an interconnected mind. And as uh, Dr. Dean Radin, who's a, a famous scientist in the area of telepathy and other, other psychic phenomena, he wrote a whole book on this. He called it Entangled Minds, which is getting to this exact point that you mentioned of it's, all, it's happened to many of us. We think of somebody, then they call. We think of somebody, then they show up in our lives in some way, and it's – we don't know if it's chance or, or not, but mm-hmm. I think some of the studies, and this is most of my book is on these studies, suggests that there is something that might be happening sometimes. And I'll give a, a, the very basic overview of the type of study that suggests there is some telepathy in everyday people, not even a superstar psychic that you, that you call up and do sessions with. This mm-hmm. is an everyday person. Okay, so you have – it's called the Gansfeld experiment, G-A-N-Z-F-E-L-D, and it's been a controversial one like many of the studies that I talk about in the book. But this is one when you combine the results over many decades of independent experimenters, you get a strong effect, and this is how it goes. You have one person in a room. We'll call that person Bob, mm-hmm. and Bob is put into a relaxed state, so he's just in the room relaxing. You have another person. We'll call her Jane, and Jane's in another room. Jane is shown by the experimenters, either a picture or a video, something, some kind of image that she's looking at. And the experimenters tell her to try to mentally send a picture of what she's seeing to Bob in the other room. Bob doesn't know what she's looking at. He's just kind of relaxing in, in this other room. So mm-hmm. after a while, Jane has been trying to mentally send this, this image to Bob. She doesn't have any psychic training necessarily. Bob comes out of his relaxed state, and the experimenters show him four pictures. 
and they say, Bob, which of these four, one of the four Jane was sending to you using her mind, which of the four do you think it was? Now, if there were no effect at all, which is what science, most of mainstream science would say, well, there's no effect because Jane's mind cannot do anything, cannot show him something because our mm -hmm. minds can't do that. But um, so we would predict that Bob would guess correctly one out of four times in the long run, that it would be 25 percent accurate because it should be totally random chance. Correct. What do we find, however, when you combine the results of many studies? It's closer to 32 percent. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the statistics and run the math on this, that that is a very significant effect, which is showing that something, not 100 percent of the time, some information is getting through. And this is important because it, it matches with our everyday lives, I think, where it doesn't happen all the time that we're reading each other's thoughts. I'm yeah. not 100 percent telepathic, but sometimes kind of randomly, I will think of somebody, then they text me or email me. And that might be the 32% versus the 25% that many of us have experienced. Got it, got it. So thanks a lot for sharing. Now, quantum entanglement is uh, uh, one of my favorite topics as well because of its implications uh, to healing and especially distant healing. And uh, if you've ever read uh, the works of Richard Gordon, uh, founder of Quantum Touch, he talks about this a lot uh, to explain how um, healing works, especially over distances, um, and he lays emphasis on two particular uh, concepts, which is attention and intention. Mm -hmm. And once we have an intention set towards something, whether it's uh, especially if it's uh, healing someone, um, then it happens. And, and they've proven it, proven this or multiple uh, experiments. And he says, you know, just don't believe me. Let's have an empirical approach to spirituality and an empirical approach to healing because there's definitely something that's happening as you've suggested and as you found, uh, which is that a particle in one part of the world, one part of the universe, uh, one part of the galaxy, if it vibrates, it definitely has an effect on that corresponding particle, no matter where it is. And this seems to be faster than light as well. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. powerful. And thanks a lot for sharing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Very important topic. That is, it's, it can be life-changing to realize that this is proven science. Oh, absolutely. Now, 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 since we've spoken about this really powerful topic, I want to get into the topic which you've alluded to a bit in, in, in our uh, earlier in our discussion, which is what happens after death. And there are people who have had these near-death experiences where they've gone to the edge and they've come back and they've shared some phenomenal experiences. So what are your thoughts on these near-death experiences? And maybe if you could touch on uh, your thoughts about what happens after a person dies. Mm -hmm. Thank you for mentioning it. It's I devote a whole chapter in the book to near-death experiences because it's such an important topic. It's another one that I think can be life-changing for people. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll start off with the conventional perspective on it sure. and what I would have told you two-plus years ago when I didn't know much. What, what I heard was that when people get close to death, if they have a severe injury or they're in cardiac arrest or something, that they might kind of see the light and feel unconditional love and see and see mystical beings and have kind of a hallucination that their brain yeah. causes them to hallucinate because it's an evolutionary mechanism to make the person feel better before they're about to die. That's, mm -hmm. that's what people would have said to me. And that's probably what I would have said. That was before I actually looked at the research and I was, I'm still blown away by what the research is suggesting. Mm -hmm. Now I'll first explain what the steps are in the near death experience. And then I'll explain 
through my research, why I don't think these are actually hallucinations, why they are seem they seem to be very real things where we have a consciousness that's functioning, even though the body and the brain are not, mm-hmm. which is such a big deal. So what happens in a near-death experience? This has been reported back since Plato, since the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. They've all talked about this experience for a long time, but it was only in 1975 that it, it became kind of a mainstream topic. And it was Raymond Moody's book where he talked about the near-death experience, and it's become a bigger topic in the last few decades because our medicine's gotten better at resuscitating people. Now we can bring people back much more easily once they've been, they've been injured or something. So now the number of people that are coming back reporting the near-death experience is way on the rise. And what's reported and – and I should say that in, in any single near-death experience, you might see – just one or two of these features, but these are the features that are generally seen throughout the, the general population. First, people talk about um, <clears throat> the term is ineffability, meaning that they're experiencing something that they cannot put into words. It's hard for them to explain it to people who have not had the experience. But they talk about um, kind of an unconditional love feeling where they're, they're overwhelmed by this feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about seeing a light. They talk about being over their body. It's called an out-of-body experience where they're actually not connected to their body and they're seeing things that happen in the room and hearing things. And they have kind of an ability to move around in the state outside their body, but they feel like themselves still. Mm-hmm. They talk about seeing mystical beings. Sometimes they're religious figures. Sometimes they're just kind of beings of light that they describe or deceased relatives. Sometimes they talk about <clears throat> excuse me, a, a life review where – Right. They experience their whole life in a short flash where they're remembering events that happened and they're judging themselves for the way they were treating people. In in some cases, they report the near-death experience through the eyes of the people that they were affecting in those instances, and they feel the pain that they were inflicting on that person. So if we go back to the initial idea of in truth there is only one mind, this makes a lot of sense. It's like in this altered state. The person is able to switch lenses from one body to another, but ultimately it's the same consciousness, which is a really impactful finding. But the, the life review is something that people talk about, and then they talk about being told to go back into their body, like there's something left more that they have to do. And then the experience ends, and people are very often transformed by this, where their, their preferences and priorities and values shift they don't necessarily care about material things quite as much. It's much more about how they treat people because that will, that's what's shown to them in the life review. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's important to note that this is a transformative thing, and, and many people actually even get divorced or change their jobs because right. their mindset has shifted so much. So that's the near-death experience. The question is, going back to the original point, what, is, that a, is that a product of things in the brain or the body, or is it something that's happening when our body is off? Mm-hmm. Now, what's the evidence that, that has compelled me to say that I think that these, are, these are not hallucinations? Now, in the book, I go through all of the, the chemical explanations of, you know, it's, a, it's a d- deprived of oxygen and carbon dioxide and levels, things like that. And in all cases, one of the problems is that when we don't have a functional brain, it's hard to, to say that there are chemicals that are causing the experience. And, and this is the key point. That in some of the studies, people are in cardiac arrest, meaning that their heart has fully stopped and there's no blood flowing to their brain. 
Now, the conventional model of medicine would say that there should not be any experience. And if there's any experience of any residual firing in the brain, it should just be it shouldn't be as clear as what these people are describing. So there are people like Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who's a Dutch cardiologist. He ran a study on this looking at cardiac arrest patients where he would interview them after they had cardiac arrest and were resuscitated. Mm-hmm. Now, he would have predicted using his conventional medical training that 0% of these people would report a near-death experience because they were in cardiac arrest, sure. clinically dead. <laughs> and yet what he finds is that 18%, one eight, reports a near-death experience. This is a remarkable finding that it was published in a prominent journal called The Lancet to go over these findings. And, and, and the fact that a, a mainstream journal like that published this finding is really significant. Um, but beyond that, there was a more recent study by Dr. Sam Parnia where he looked at car- people in cardiac arrest, and one of the people in his study reported things that were happening during the time that his brain was off because they have the timestamps of, okay. you know, right? And the things he was reporting, they were happening during that time that his brain was off, mm. which is remarkable. Really, really, really interesting because I have interviewed uh, a few people who've had these near-death experience. And in all cases, uh, like you've mentioned, after that experience, their life changes. They have a new concept of life, a higher level of gratitude and humility. Uh, and they sh- you know, change careers or maybe they get divorced. So they make a big shift in their life. And like you've also shared, uh, these things are definitely uh, part of the experience, which is the uh, experience of unconditional love during that near-death experience, the ability to project, astral project, and look at your body from a different part of the room, perhaps, uh, seeing the light and having that life review and all the experiences and all the memories that you've gone through throughout your life, positive or negative, and especially instances where you might have hurt or you know harmed someone. And so it's, it's a moment of judgment, so to speak. Uh, but also, like you mentioned, the ineffability the inability to, I guess, articulate or use words to describe what exactly happened to them, which totally makes sense. Uh, And like I think Wayne Dyer did mention that uh, a spiritual experience cannot really be intellectualized. It can only be experienced. And uh, like Joseph Campbell once mentioned, the moment you try to explain the Tao, you're not explaining it. <laughs> the moment you try to or attempt to explain something like the Tao or an experience, maybe like the near-death experience, you're not really explaining it because it shifts. And that's the funny thing, I guess, about quantum physics is that I guess the perceiver uh, affects the experiment, right? And the yeah. <laughs> yes, the, the, it's called the observer effect where the actual behavior of a physical right. particle will change when the person observes. So we have to wonder if consciousness is is, is involved in affecting the physical reality. Now, now speaking about physical realities, let's move on to pal- parallel realities and alternative universes. And, uh, you know, I just before our conversation, I was uh, listening and watching to a podcast by Joe Rogan, uh, mm-hmm. who talks a lot about these things. And what he was speaking about is the fact that there might be or maybe people have suggested there are alternate and parallel universes. Uh, and those are connected with uh, the presence of black holes, uh, and 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 which give the shape to many uh, galaxies, right? The spherical shape, and they say that there's a there's a black hole, and once you enter the black hole, what you might be entering into is a new universe. So, what are your thoughts on this, and do you believe they exist? 
<laughs> parallel realities. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm open. The, the black hole theories. I'm I'm open to those possibilities, and I think they need to be studied much further. Uh, but I think it's it's really hard for us to know at this point because we haven't. I don't think we have the data, and it's it's very theoretical. On the topic of parallel universes and the notion that things could be happening maybe at the same time, yeah. even though we're not aware of it, I'm very open to that idea. And it gets to a question about what is time and what is causality? Is something from the past causing the future? And I spend mm-hmm. a lot of time in the book on, on this topic because there's a phenomenon known as precognition where yeah. the body is responding to a future event before the future event is known by anybody. Right. So it's like the future is causing the past. It's, a, it's known as retro-causality, which physicists do not like to talk about because that it blows up a lot of the conventional <laughs> models. But it, yeah. to, like, to me, I think there's something there, and there's even something on an experiential level about time where mm-hmm. we can't even prove that the past exists. I mean if, right. if, if someone said to me, prove that, that you were talking to AJ five seconds ago, um, I could say, well, yeah, I can prove it because I have a memory of it. But wait, yeah. the memory of it is occurring right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the memory didn't occur in the past. The <laughs> yeah. memory occurs in the present, and the same thing happens with the future. If I think about a future event, my thought of it occurs right now. So there's a, a challenge here that the only thing that actually exists is the, the now or the present moment. And it, it kind of gets to how I'm envisioning time and the universe and potential parallel realities, which is to say that our the way we perceive time using our limited brain – in the same way that we can't understand infinity, like we know infinity exists mathematically, yeah. but we can't wrap our heads around it. I think time might be one of those things that it's, it's like there's a simultaneous, simultaneity of the universe where a lot's happening at once. Yeah. And yet we, we have this experience of past, present and future. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting uh, because I guess uh, mainstream science assumes a linear model to time. And yeah. that's being, I guess, questioned right now. Now, uh, through your book, through your research, I'm sure you've connected, uh, as you've shared, with a lot of amazing, gifted uh, people who've done a lot of research. Uh, have you received some pushback from the mainstream scientific community? And what are the, you know what are they saying? Mm-hmm. Well, the book, as of the date of this recording, has been out for about a month. Okay. So I, I, I have not received much from the mainstream community, and I'm not sure who in the mainstream community has read it. But I would say generally the responses I've gotten from people who have read early drafts of the book and have, have read it in the last few weeks are, are reactions of openness from people who are sort maybe in the position that I was in a few years ago where I just had never been exposed to these things. And it's kind of like, oh, this is interesting. How do I reconcile it? I'm going to be very interested to see what happens when mainstream scientists look at this book, because what I found, and one of the reasons I felt so compelled to write it, is that we have a situation going on that's similar to what Galileo faced. Yeah. And Galileo, he, he had his evidence in his telescope, which showed people that the Earth was not at the center of the solar system. Yes. And that was a radical idea. And yet the clergymen at the time, they didn't want to look in his telescope because it would have changed their worldview. We have a similar situation where I think there are mainstream scientists who are used to seeing things one way. And what I'm discussing here and what many other people are discussing challenges that worldview. It says that matter does not create consciousness. The brain doesn't create consciousness, but it's the other way around. Like Max Planck, the famous quantum physicist, in 1931, he said, I regard consciousness as fundamental and I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. That's what we're talking about. It's a radical shift. So there's resistance. 
And I, I mention a number of really smart scientists out there who say yeah. there is no evidence at all for extrasensory perception. Or, I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson, a famous astrophysicist who's done a great job in the mainstream of bringing science to people. But he yeah. said, he said, I wonder if there's no such thing as consciousness at all. I'm paraphrasing that quote. Uh, mm. Stephen Hawking, even, famous physicist, what he said was, he said, I get uneasy when people, especially theoretical physicists, talk about consciousness. Mm. Mm. Well, I see a reason why a lot of the mainstream scientists might reject this immediately without wanting to look uh, deeper into the studies and research behind it is because if this proves to be true, then the entire foundation based on which science has been, as we know it today, has been formed is going to fall off, right? <laughs> everything is going to change. <laughs> Everything's going to change. So I would say that, yes, everything is going to change and that we shift the role of consciousness. But we it doesn't mean we throw out chemistry, biology, physics, the material yeah, world, yeah. because we just have to rethink the material world. The material world yeah. is occurring within consciousness. So I think it will mm. just augment the theories. But you're right. I mean, it is a... This is a tectonic shift in worldview, especially for a scientific community that has been so very much in the other direction. Well, absolutely. Now, you know, on the same topic, what are your thoughts on where humanity is going and the future of artificial intelligence and, and consciousness as we know it today? What are mm -hmm. your thoughts on that? Well, on the topic of artificial intelligence specifically, I actually just wrote an article on this uh, in Thrive Global, which is Ariane Huffington's new outlet. And I, I talk about the show called Westworld. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with that show? Uh, I, I don't have HBO, so I, okay. I don't, I'm not. I want, I want to get that show so bad. I might just, uh, you know, subscribe to HBO because I'm a Netflix subscriber. But I've heard on so many different platforms that it is definitely a must-watch. <laughs> okay, then I won't give too much away for your listeners who want to watch it. But I hadn't watched it either, and I had enough people say to me when they heard about my book, Mark, you have to watch Westworld. So I watched it, <laughs> and I just watched it really quickly and just binge watched it. But the, the one of the premises of the of the show is that artificial intelligence machines they get complex enough where they start to have mm. memories and feelings. Yeah. And because they have memories and feelings, and they're already these like enhanced machines that yeah. they can become dangerous potentially. So I won't give any more away than that. And the question yeah. that I look at is, well, is that realistic? Can a machine become conscious just because right. it's more complex? Now, this is what I would dispute about the show, and this is where I think they, they miss things, is that they are assuming that when we put matter together in a machine in a complex enough, way, complex enough way, that consciousness will somehow pop out in the same way that scientists are saying, well, yeah, the brain's just complex and consciousness pops out, but we have no idea how. Mm -hmm. I would argue that with artificial intelligence, what we have to worry about, you know, people like Elon Musk are very concerned about artificial intelligence and how it can kind of take over. I think what we have to worry about is how we program the machines because we could make a machine that has algorithms to do things that are, are really bad. But will the machine itself develop feelings and emotions and a consciousness and memories? That's what I would dispute. And there are people, <clears throat> for example, his name is Federico Fagin, <clears throat> excuse me, Federico Fagin, who is one of the inventors of the microprocessor. A very credible guy in machine learning, and he is saying the same thing about consciousness, which is, wait, everybody, we're not going to create consciousness from a machine because consciousness is more fundamental than the machine. So it's right. the other way around. And that, so that I think our, our collective thinking on AI has to shift. 
Right, right, right. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I, I'm guessing you watched the uh, Elon Musk episode with Joe Rogan, right, where he expressed his worry about where humanity is going and the rapid you know, uh, pace of, of, of artificial, artificial intelligence and how it's catching on uh, to the world that we live in, right? And also, I'm not sure if you've seen that uh, demonstration where they're, uh, they're testing, I think, a robot driven by artificial intelligence and it's trying to jump or it's trying to walk and the person who is conducting the experiment kicks the robot multiple times. <laughs> and so it's in a, it's 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 something definitely to think about and it's a bit scary as well like uh you know what if and this is written by people like Isaac Asimov and Arthur C Clarke right what if they become smart enough or even uh, smarter than humans what 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 is the implication for humanity and consciousness as we know it today mm-hmm. well but, i guess yeah. <laughs> i guess what i would say is that i don't think the machines will develop They'll become very computationally smart in that they can do tasks and they're ba- they're basing everything on algorithms and they can learn using algorithms. But I don't think they're going to have that extra piece that we all have. Anyone listening right now that that consciousness, that awareness, that sense of self. I don't think that that's something that we can just artificially create from a machine. I think there's a related question though. I mean, we are all physical beings that are are interacting with consciousness. How is that happening? How is the brain receiving consciousness, so to speak? Um, could we create that in something else, some other physical form? Maybe, maybe that's something that could happen. But until we understand how the brain is picking up consciousness, it's not yeah. just going to happen on its own. That's my guess. Got it, got it. I mean, the truth is, uh, like you would agree, that uh, the last ten years, a lot of shift has happened in in humanity, in our lifestyles, in the way we uh, yeah, conduct our day to day life, in our uh, rapid adoption of technology and dependence on it uh, that has i'm sure impacted conscious consciousness right so what are your thoughts on on giants like like google and facebook and their ability to affect uh, and influence uh, human collective consciousness mm-hmm. do you worry about that implication uh, and their power in the future it's a really important topic and i i guess i have mixed feelings about it because it's it's companies like that that have enabled so much interconnectivity and the sharing of information. And that yeah. personally resonates because it was – if I didn't have the technology of today's world, I wouldn't have been able to learn these things so quickly. Correct. And it was it's because of companies like Facebook and Google and many others that, that allow for collective learning. But at the same time, I think there can be negative things that are shared and we have to balance uh, the pros and the cons. And to, to me, the, the broader issues that we're seeing in the world are related, in my opinion, to – this picture of reality of what what are we as human beings? Are we bodies that have a consciousness that is here for a limited time? That's we're fundamentally not connected to anyone else beyond having similar genes because we're the same species, but we're not really connected. If that's the worldview, which I think is the worldview of a lot of the tech world that I've been yeah. exposed to and a lot of the mainstream scientific community, that has a set of implications for what matters and what doesn't in life. Whereas if we are if we flip the identity, which is what's happened to me, really, which is to say, no, consciousness is primary. I am a consciousness first and foremost that is having an experience, a limited experience through this body, through experiencing the physical world through a body. But my identity is my consciousness. And that consciousness, furthermore, is connected to everybody else's consciousness. Like Erwin Schrodinger said, in truth, there is only one mind. So if that's true, if there's no real separation beyond what our eyes show us in almost mm. an illusion, to, so to speak, then what does that mean for how we run society? What does that mean for how tech companies think about their information and the, the impact it will have on others because we're all connected 
beyond technology. We're connected at the basis of reality. So to me, what we're seeing in the tech world and even politics and uh, all over, things all over the world, it's an understanding of are we finite beings who are separate or are mm-hmm. we infinite beings who are interconnected? Got it. Got it. So Action Tribe, that is something to definitely ponder about, think about, or even meditate about is the ultimate question, which we keep having in each and every episode is you're not just a human having a spiritual experience, but you're a spiritual being having a human experience. And so, Mark, what can people listening to this episode right now, irrespective of where they are, maybe they're driving to work or maybe they're at home, what can a person on an individual basis do to prepare for what is what it is what what is to come? What is it one action step that you like to recommend for someone listening right now? What I've found, and this is anecdotally with for myself and others around me who have become exposed to these topics, just being exposed to the ideas that our brain's not the producer of consciousness, but that the brain is processing consciousness and that our identity is an interconnected, non-physical awareness. That idea alone can start to shift things for people, I've noticed. So what something that I tend to do a lot of is, is just reconnect with that idea on a, uh, throughout the day because it's easy to get caught into the, the duality that we experience with our eyes mm. where the, there's a me and then there's a separate you over there and we're not connected and it, it just seems so separate and it can be daunting at times. Sometimes I just come back in the middle of the day and say, wait a second, what has all this science shown you? Is that what you're seeing with your eyes is part of the experience of being in a human body, but the reality is that we are consciousness first and foremost. So I think that practice of kind of pulling back into the reality of experience can start to shift things for people in a way that I can't fully explain. So Action Tribe, to read the entire show notes for today's episode, including the inspirational quote, book recommendation, and certain nuggets of wisdom that you might not have been able to note down or take down, especially if you're in transit, visit my7chakras.com forward slash 261. That's my7chakras.com forward slash 261. Action Tribe, it is the holiday season and if you feel stuck, a bit clogged and out of alignment, then it's time to balance and heal your chakras. If you've been planning to but for some reason haven't been able to get into a healing routine and follow through and be consistent, then I've got some great news for starting 2019 with a fresh burst of energy. We've just opened beta enrollment for our brand new program called Chakra Sprint. Now, this program is a result of the learnings that I've had on my own journey after reading numerous books, attending workshops and interviewing 260 of the world's top healers, experts and visionaries on my show My 7 Chakras. Now, what's the program about? 21 days to greater balance, higher energy, more harmony and greater synchronicity. And this will work even if you feel like you're really busy and you don't know where to begin. And since we haven't officially launched yet, we're still in the beta phase at the moment. You get to enroll at a no-brainer and highly affordable price of $97 for the entire program, including all the bonuses, until December 31st. I'm inviting 50 action takers to partake in this experience. And as of this recording, we're already at 25, so about 25 spots more. 
and then we close enrollment. Now, this is not a 12 to 16 week course. This is an experiential program where I'll be giving you a daily plan which would include guided meditations, recipes, recommendations, and reflections as we ascend chakra by chakra from the root all the way to the crown. Now, just imagine understanding your chakras through experience rather than through the intellect using books or videos, feeling more open, balanced and aligned to allow your life force to do its healing work. Just imagine experiencing peace, bliss, harmony and happiness in everyday life and feeling more clear, more vibrant, more balanced and energized on a daily basis. Just imagine standing your ground increasing your inner confidence, connecting with your heart, expressing your true voice and strengthening your intuition and aligning with the universe. Would you like to attract more opportunities, manifest your desires and experience synchronicities? How about deepening your relationship with your inner healer and your higher self that already has all the wisdom, guidance and answers that you seek. And you know this deep down within. If this sounds like you, Action Tribe, then I invite you to jump into the multicolored energetic ocean of your chakras by enrolling in Chakra Sprint with me. Visit chakrasprint.com to learn more. Once again, to get started, visit chakrasprint.com. If you didn't get that, it's C-H-A-K-R-A-S-P-R-I-N-T dot com. Action Tribe, let me be your guide and introduce you to the different ways of cleansing and balancing and opening your chakras. By the end of this program, you will not only find ways that work for you, but you'll also create a chakra balancing routine. The link you need is chakrasprint.com. Those who recognize problems as a human condition and don't measure happiness by an absence of problems are the most intelligent kind of humans we know. Also, the most rare. Now, this is an amazing quote by Dr. Wayne Dyer. Action Tribe, I've been reading and watching a lot of uh, Wayne Dyer stuff these days and this quote is exceptionally true. Your level of happiness and the presence of problems in your life are mutually exclusive. Problems come into our life because we attract them in order to have a life experience and learn a life lesson from it. But that does not mean that you can't find reasons to be happy and to be grateful because you always do. Recognize that everyone goes through these tough situations in life, everyone, but don't let that bring you down. Take action and move towards your glorious victory and know, just like Wayne Dyer reminded us, that problems are part of the human condition. Now, Mark, speaking about times of adversity and facing challenges, talk to us about one major challenge that you've experienced. What did you go through and how did you overcome it? Hmm. I think the process of, of writing the book itself was a challenge because it was never something that I had planned on doing. And not only was I planning to just write a book and do it very quickly, but I was writing about a topic that is going against a lot of what I've learned and is going against a lot of very smart people who probably would not be happy. I knew they would not be happy that I was writing this book. Some people would be really happy and other people would not be so happy about it. And that for me, as someone who doesn't like to make people unhappy in general, that was a challenge to say, okay, I'm going to write something that I know is going to be controversial and I'm going to take a very logical stance, but I'm not going to waver from that stance. Now, how did I get through that? I think I got through it by saying, well, what are my values and what do I think matters and how many people could I help 
by doing this, even if I take some criticism. I know that the number of people that I can help, even if it's a small number, could be very drastic, and those people's lives could shift in a positive direction. So I let that thinking outweigh whatever negatives could come out of it. So based on what you've shared, what is it one life lesson that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say it's a general topic, uh, and it's one of surrender. It's the notion that we to appreciate how little control we have. And I think that's something I didn't appreciate when I, before I got into this work, I thought that everything that had happened needed to be controlled by me until I realized that the entity Mark has limited control relative to this much bigger reality that I can't see with my eyes. So surrendering to that kind of letting go of the, of the desire or the need to control everything can be a very big shift for somebody. And that's, that's a, still a practice, and I think it's a difficult one in, the, in these bodies in this world, but it's one that mm-hmm. can really help one's mindset and allow one to get through difficult times. So thanks a lot for sharing. I think that's really inspiring. And uh, many of our listeners would be able to take away something uh, that they can apply in their life as well. Because uh, so often in life, we come across a fork road where we have to make a decision, right? And one decision is going uh, uh, to the status quo where everyone's, uh, you know, agreeing with you and uh, you, you lead the normal life. And the other way is where you have to go against uh, the mainstream. You have to go against what people have believed in till date because you know the truth and you know that you're moving towards uh, towards the truth and what needs to be done. In in such situations, like you mentioned, it's it's important to sort of introspect and, and reevaluate what your values are, implications for the work that you will be able to do, and most importantly, the people that you will be able to help. And so with this service mindset, I think a lot can be achieved. At the end of the day, it's all about surrendering to the universe surrendering mm-hmm. and just going in the flow and let and, and looking at one step at a time instead of you know worrying about what's going to happen deep down into the future so thanks a lot for sharing mm-hmm. my pleasure so action drive i hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as i did what we're discussing today is that our biological processes do not create consciousness on the other hand consciousness creates the material world and the physical about us right and this information has implications for many fields of study including business health politics what is taught in schools Uh, but surely there's going to be a shift and your consciousness the one that is always watching is always seeking something right what are you seeking are you seeking the meaning of life the meaning of existence the truth about the universe like we were talking about today the black hole that might be so, but Joseph Campbell, author and expert in mythology, encouraged us to rethink this situation. And what he said was, maybe we're not seeking the meaning of life. We're seeking the experience of being alive. Right? And that's why it all boils down to understanding what is consciousness and how we experience life around us and within us through consciousness. So what are your thoughts on this? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Let me know. Shoot me an email. DM me on Instagram or message me on uh, on Facebook or join our Facebook group. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this amazing and important conversation that we're having today. And with that, we are now at the last but important round for today, which is called the Wisdom Round. So, Mark, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Hmm. 
I think it goes back to the topic of surrender. And the, the work of Dr. David Hawkins is, is – I really appreciate his work. He's, he's best known for his consciousness scale. But he talks about this notion of, of surrendering our positionalities, meaning that we have a position that we take on things. We have a judgment that we take on things naturally. And sometimes we have to recognize that that is coming from the place of our ego, which might not be in line with reality. So to always acknowledge that whatever position we're taking on something, to say that thing is bad or it's good, where is that position coming from? And is that position coming from a cosmic perspective? Maybe we can't have a cosmic perspective from our limited body, so we have to surrender a bit and say, I can't judge whether this thing is good or bad from, from my humble, limited perspective. Now, if you could turn back time and spend one hour with any person who's currently dead or living, who would it be? I would go back to Dr. David Hawkins, who passed away a few years ago. I think he was a very enlightened person who in the modern day was able to translate things extremely well for this era. Got it. And uh, what is one thing that you do in the morning or in the evening before sleeping that has improved the quality of your life? I've tried I played around with many different practices and the one that I'm currently doing is is uh, a basic meditation practice of laying down and and for eight minutes or so in the morning and night trying to just clear my mind and and just being clear about my intentions so having that reset period a few times a day I think is helpful got it now if you could recommend one book for our listeners uh, what would that be The one that is coming through right now is a book by Dr. David Hawkins called Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender. Got it. So Action Tribe, I know how much you love our book recommendations and I know that many of you get these books as soon as you hear them shared on our show. Uh, uh, so in case you don't know, Audible is offering Action Tribe one free audiobook uh, download with a free 30-day trial so that you can get to check out their services. And they've got a ton of different books, uh, including The Chakra System by Anadia Judith and The Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. To get your free audiobook today, go to my7chakras.com forward slash freebook. Once again, that's my7chakras.com forward slash freebook to get started with downloading your audiobook and start listening to a book as opposed to having to read it so mark thank you so much for joining me today it's really great chatting with you and learning more about our consciousness and how our world uh, will change as a result of mainstream acceptance of it but before you go tell us one thing that you're super grateful for and how we can find you and learn more about your work well thank you so much for having me and i would say what i'm grateful for today is the fact that you had me on your show and you gave me an opportunity to discuss these ideas that i'm hoping will will be helpful to some of your listeners who hear it. Um, in terms of how to find more information, I, my website is a good place to start, which is my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And that has information on my book, which is An End to Upside Down Thinking. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, many other bookstores as well. My website also has a, a tab for my podcast, which is not out yet. I'm hoping to release it in the next few months, but I've interviewed many of the scientists that I talk about in my book, and I wanted to give people an opportunity to hear from the scientists themselves about the studies they're running and about how credible some of this research is. So uh, please stay on the lookout if you're interested. On my website and on social media, I will announce a launch date once I have it. 
Awesome. Thanks a lot for sharing. Show Action Tribe, uh, this particular interview was approximately one hour long and it's not really possible to go through everything that uh, Mark has researched about and has written and has explained in his book in just 60 minutes, right? Because that's a lot of information, a lot of exciting stuff. So if that has piqued your interest and if you'd like to order a copy of Mark's latest book titled An End to Upside Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday life if you want to get that book on amazon go to my seven chakras.com forward slash 261 book that's my seven chakras.com forward slash 261 book so i made a link so that it's convenient for you and it'll land you straight on amazon where you can learn more about the book and you'll be able to uh, order it straight to your home so mark thank you so much for coming on our show talking to us about uh, your amazing research and about consciousness and so many other topics that we went into and basically taking us one step closer to a human revolution thank you so much for having me you are listening to my seven chakras go to my s-e-v-e-n chakras.com download your free gift Get inspired and take action. Transform your life today.